I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. We're continuing on in our series. Now, typically we do about a chapter a week. However, last week we only moved a few verses into chapter 22. And so we're actually going to cover all the rest of chapter 22 and chapter 23. Now, that's quite a bit of scripture. And so there's going to be some parts of it I'm going to summarize just for brevity, uh, the sake of time. Uh, for some reason, you guys don't like it when I preach an hour. I don't know why. But, um, but we will go ahead and move into uh, chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 3. You know, as we, we step into this, we live in a society, especially with our new, the way we get our news, and um, it's so right in front of us. It's easy for us to be a people who is outraged. It's easy for us to be a people who constantly looking around, and it's easy to find reasons to be afraid. It's easy to find reasons to be discouraged, because what we see, as many people, even non-believers, look around and you say, There's, there almost seems to be this, this darkness that seems to be almost oppressive, that just seems to be all around us. And the question is, how do we respond to that? It is difficult. Uh, we as a staff, we're reading, we started reading a book uh, a, a little bit ago uh, by Nancy Percy called Love Thy Body, and she's dealing with the way our secular society views personhood and the, the effects that it has, and, and, and it makes, when you understand how we view personhood, the, the decisions that our culture makes on things like abortion and euthanasia and, and our hookup culture and uh, homosexual, homosexuality and transgenderism, it makes sense from that perspective. Well, some of it makes sense. Even uh, it makes sense from their perspective. It still doesn't make sense in many ways. But as you look at it, and, and one of the things we talked about as we were reading it, it's, it's easy to become discouraged. I mean, we're reading in this book quotes from Ivy League professors, Professor Princeton saying that... Uh, a child really should not have a right to exist until he hits at least a minimum of age three. And at any point before then, it should be up to the parents whether or not they want to have a child eliminated because they don't fit a quote-unquote personhood. And you read that, and thankfully, of course, that is a fringe. That's not certainly what you would find most people in our culture, I, I don't think, believe in. But you read that and you think, that's just evil, but yet this person has a celebrated professorship at one of the most elite universities in our, in our country. And you read that and other, uh, other just comments from, from people within our world, and you think, how? how? How do you even respond to that kind of evil? And so many of us, if you're like me, you've begun, just for the own sake of your own discouragement and depression, you, 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 you almost kind of have to limit the news that is around us. So, because it's easy, especially with the way our media news outlets operate, where they're constantly, because they get money from your attention, they're constantly want to pull you into stories. And one of the easiest ways they can do that is by really promoting and even just challenging and pushing on you, uh, just kind of an outrage because you want to just keep watching within there. 
And so we find ourselves with all kinds of reasons to get outraged. And the question is, how then do we respond to it in a way that is distinctively Christian? Because, let me suggest to you, the way in which oftentimes our church is responding to evil isn't a whole lot different than the way non-believers are responding. And that's not right. There is, in fact, a distinctively Christian way to respond. And that's what I want us to look at this week. We've been talking in 1 Samuel, and one of the things that we've been highlighting through the first, this 1 first Samuel series is what you see throughout is the hand and the sovereignty of God throughout. David is now on the run. Uh, he was in the court with Saul. He was married to Saul's daughter, but Saul in his paranoia and getting lost to his sin has now begun trying to kill David. And so we see and we've examined uh, David's flight. We've even turned last week into the Psalms to try to see because they give us a picture of how David was processing this, how he was taking his fear and his and anxiety and his outrage, and he was taking it to God in prayer. This week, we're going to see once more as things continue to escalate, and there's all kinds of political intrigue and deception and, and things that would be worthy of a modern-day uh, suspense TV show. But yet, in real life, and often real life, is far more outrageous than fiction. The question becomes, where do we see how David responds? And so we're going to go back into 1 Samuel 22, verse 6. Once again, we, we find that um, Samuel is on the run. Or excuse me, uh, David is on the run. And he was there in the cave of Adullam. And there in the cave of Adullam, you, you began to see about 400 men. It began with his family, his brothers, his parents came about. And uh, 400 different men who were kind of outcasts uh, came and flocked to him. And David became their commander. Now, at first, what he did was he took his family over to the people of Moab. Now, Moab's would have been enemies of Saul. We, we know this from previous sections in 1 Samuel. However, because David had in his lineage was Ruth, the Moabitess, there was a certain family connection that he had that most Israelites did not. And so he actually found somewhat of a safe harbor in Moab. And so his, his parents were allowed to stay there. And we think they probably stayed there. But what happened is God ultimately called David not to just hang back in Moab, but to go back into Judah. And so what we find is Saul has now found out where David is. And so here's what we find in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gabeah under the, the Tiramask tree in the height with his spear at his hand. And all of his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? 
And so what is he doing right here in this passage? He's saying, wait a minute, here I got an enemy. So let's play ball here, folks. Let's choose a side. You can choose going with David, but will he give you the benefits I will? Because here, here's what I can do. I can offer you choice things. I'm the king right now. I can give property to you. I, you be my friend and I'll be your friend. And so we skip down now. And what we find out in, in light of that offer, Doeg the Edomite steps up. And we remember from chapter 20 to 1, Doeg the Edomite was there when David was running and he, and he found refuge with the priest. And the priest gave him the sword of Goliath and gave him the bread of presence within there. And so Doeg the Edomite was a mighty man in, in Saul's courts. He was the, the, head, uh, uh, the head of his herd. And so Doeg the Edomite says, wait a minute, I saw David going to the priest at Nob. And so Saul outraged, wait a minute, that priest helped David? And so he calls in the priest and he calls in uh, a whole kind of priestly entourage. A little over 80 men came in with them and, and Saul accuses them, hey, why are you aiding my enemies? And the priest says, what are you talking about? David's your man. I've helped him all the time in because he was your man. And now you're saying I shouldn't have done this? And we find Saul's response now in chapter 22, verse 16. He says this, and the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And then the king said to Doeg, will you turn and strike the priests? And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. A little bit of an overreaction, don't you think? But yet now what we see is Saul is even growing even more bold in his corruption. He is offering people land to serve him, to be loyal to him. And he's even commanding now this, this non-Israelite, this Edomite, to go and strike the Lord's priest. And now even then, he sends him to Nob to go and wipe out and kill everything. Now, this is in contrast to a few chapters earlier when God had called Saul to go and wipe out the Amalekites, Right? But Saul didn't obey that. He still spared some of the choice. He spared the, the king, Agag. But yet, in his own anger, he sends this Edomite to go and completely destroy this Israelite city. And so you see evermore, Saul has become a king just like the nation's. Which is exactly what the people of Israel was asking Samuel to give him. Give us a king just like all the nations. And they got what they wanted here because that's exactly how he is acting. 
But what is amazing, what really strikes me, when you, you get a little bit of an insight into Saul in, in, in chapter 23, verse 7, you see, he finds out that, that David had gone to a city to help rescue them. Now, that was supposed to be Saul's job. Saul, as king, should have been the one going and rescuing the city from the Philistines. Instead, David did it. But what he finds out is, hey, David's up there. And so you see Saul's response when he hears about it in chapter 23, verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kaliah. And Saul said, to, said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering that town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kaliah and besiege David and his men. And so rather than saying, hey, I need to go be a help to this people, I need to go get my enemy in, even besiege this town who is under my rule, who I've been charged to protect. But here's what really strikes me in this. Notice what he says. God has given him into my hand. He has completely slaughtered the priests of the living God completely wiped out their town. And now he actually believes that the living God is on his side. You see, and this is my first point. When we look at a distinctively Christian way to respond to evil, the first thing we need to do is we need to first check our own blind spots. We need to first check our own blind spots. I've got a 16-year-old son that we're teaching how to drive right now, so we need your prayers. And so as we're learning to drive, one of the things that you teach them is, hey, your mirrors matter. You need, to, you need to be constantly aware of what's going on around you, not just what's ahead of you, but what's behind you, because every car has a blind spot. Every car has a blind spot. And the truth is, in our own lives, it is very easy for us to have blind spots in our own lives because that's how the seductive power of sin works. It is easy for us to fixate and look at the evil around us, to see evil around us, but be completely unaware of what's going on in our own heart and own life and believe that we can do incredibly evil things and think that we're still walking with the Lord God, that we're still with him. You see, with Christianity, with the living God, we see a couple of realities that are very distinctively Christian. One reality is that evil, sin, exists. There is true, real evil in this world. And so we don't respond by evil by saying, well, you know, it doesn't really exist. This, these are just moral constructs. No, we can look at something and say, that is evil. But it doesn't stop there. And the recognition of evil is also the recognition that we are fallen. And that same evil that floods through this world has the propensity to run through our hearts. The great Russian literary scholar, and I don't ever say his name right, Alexander Cholitsinzin. I know my wife would probably cringing at my pronunciation right now came to this conclusion as he was, you know, imprisoned in a Russian gulag. 
and became overwhelmed at the hate of evil, of the the prison guards and the, the corrupt communist regime. But God in his mercy brought this incredible point to him as he recognized and was dealing with the hate in his own heart. He began to recognize the same hate that was in them that was causing them to do all this evil, these horrible things, was running right through his own heart as well. You see, that's one of the great temptations in our own world. As we have this news media that seeks to call our attention to all the evil, it's good for us to recognize it. We don't want to be Pollyanna. We don't want to stick our heads in the dirt and say, oh, life is really just good No, we recognize there is evil in this word. There are things that are not right that must be called out. But we also recognize that in our natural state, we too were hostile and enemies to God. You see, one of the seductive parts of evil is for us to look at it and not see our own propensity to be participating in it. And in our reaction to that, we can want to say with this evil, Hey, let's deal with this evil and with the same power because it begins, we become afraid of this. We become afraid of those who are in power, the politicians or the, the, the Ivy League academics. And we think, hey, we need to deal with them and we want to adopt the Chicago way. What am I referring to? The Chicago way, that, that classic movie, The Untouchables, right? So there's this scene in The Untouchables where Kevin Costner, the FBI agent, is there with the Hardened grizzly cop, uh, Sean Connery. And he's saying, I want to get compone. And the Chicago cop, Sean Connery, says, what are you willing to do? The FBI agent says, anything that's within the law. And what is Connery's response? Then what are you willing to do? He says, to beat them, you have to be like them. They pull a gun on you, you pull a, or they, you pull a, they pull a knife on you, you pull a gun on them. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. That's the Chicago way, he says. And many of us, it's easy in our fear, as they become so big, people become big, God becomes small. And we think to win, we need to adopt the Chicago way or the way of this world. Because that's the way our world seems to operate. We were fixated with power in our world. We're fixated with power. And as one theologian, David Wells, says, when we no longer have an agreed morality, what, ta- what fills that vacuum is power. And so we feel that need and that urge that, hey, for us to win... We need to adopt the same ways of the world, but become so seductive. We're able to look and see their evil, but we begin to become blind to the evil within our own hearts. So how do we respond to evil? The first thing we do is we check our own blind spots. But then, as we check our own blind spots, we also respond with faithful obedience. We respond with faithful obedience. Chapter 22, stepping back a little bit, back into chapter 22, verse 3. And David went from there to Mizpeth of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father 
and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart, go into the land of Judah. So David departed and he went into the forest of Herod. And so now David here, he's got this kind of nice safe place. He could just hunker down. He's already got people coming to him. Hey, why don't I build an army? Why don't I stay in this safe place? But, and this is one of the differences you see, where Saul is just moving out and just assuming that God is with him, he is stopping and inquiring of the Lord. He is praying. He is seeking to know what God is, and then he is faithfully obeying. It would certainly be a lot safer and make a lot more common sense for him to stay where he was at. But yet God called him to move back into Judah. And with obedience, it's important for us to recognize, sometimes we think, well, the way of obedience is the easy way. But God brings us into places where obedience is actually difficult sometimes. It stretches our faith. It brings us to the place where we can't rely on ourselves. But we must rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and his power, his sovereignty and his goodness. We see that in chapter 23, verses 1. Um, <clears throat> and so David is now, uh, he's in, the, in, 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 in Judah And it says this, now they were told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Caleb and they're robbing the threshing floors. And so what's going on is this is kind of a border town. So the Philistines are coming in. And if you remember, there's the the threshing floors are kind of like this this, uh, pavement of, of stones on the ground and this kind of this open area on a hill. And so it's very easy to attack them. But by attacking these threshing floors, uh, they're attacking something that has been, uh, it's, it's not something easily replaced. This is the grain of months of work waiting to harvesting that is now gone. And so it's not even just, uh, you know, hurting people, it's affecting their entire economy and their livelihood and their source of food. But David's men said to him, and so, so uh, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore David inquired of the Lord. Once again, he's asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? He's not just assuming, he's, he's going to the Lord in prayer. Shall I go and attack uh, these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save uh, Kalah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kelah against the armies of the Philistines. And so David's own men are saying, "Um, are you sure about this, boss? This seems kind of hard. This seems kind of difficult. And so what does David do? Now, keep in mind, as we compare the leadership of David to the leadership of Saul, we see oftentimes when when Saul was leading, he often did partial obedience. He didn't fully obey what God had told him to do. And why? Because he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of, of, of what they were saying, that they would want to do or wouldn't want to do. David now is in the same position where his, his men are saying, hey, I'm not, we're not sure about this, boss. Rather than just giving into their fears, what it says is then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, arise, go to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now, notice that. Don't skip over this. 
in this obedience that God was calling them to do, he was saying, your ability to obey me, to do, will ultimately depend on my empowerment. Not on your strength, not on your wisdom, not on your battle tactics, not on the the strength of your army, but on me. This obedience that I'm calling you to do is about you learning to be dependent upon me. And David and his men went into Kela, and they fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow so that David saved the inhabitants of Kela. And so what this teaches us is in the midst of evil, when it's easy for us to become paralyzed with fear, to say, hey, let's just hunker down, keep to ourselves, let the world take care of itself. What God is ultimately calling us to do in the midst of the danger is not to become people that rise up and say, hey, let me be the savior of this world, but rather in obedience, trust the true savior of the world and to follow him. And this means that in the times of fear and evil, we need to become all the more aware of what God has called us to do by studying his word. God has given us his word for us to understand, to fill us with wisdom, to give us guidance, to follow him, to trust him. And we find that he calls us to abide with him by his words abiding in us. We have no hope for us to follow him in obedience if we are not in his word listening to what he has called us to do. It's easy for us in the midst of our evil to say, hey, let's turn on the news. Let's follow this political leader. God has called us to follow the true king instead. And there's one other, and this, this, this could be a subset of obedience, but it's distinct enough and ignored so much by us in the church that it's worth making its own point, and that's this. One of the key ways that we respond to evil in faithful obedience is ultimately by responding with evil with good. We respond to evil with good. What do I mean by that? Take a look in 1 Samuel 23, verse 7. So David is now, he has saved the town from the Philistines, as we just saw in, uh, in verse 5. And it says this. When Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself into entering the town that the gates and the, uh, that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Okay, so Saul's coming. Now we find, as we read on, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. 
And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. Then, then the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into his hand? Of Saul. And the Lord said, They will surrender you. And then David and his men, who were about 600, so they've, they've arisen from 400 to 600, 50% increase, arose and what? They departed. Kayla, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kayla, he gave up the expedition. What do we see in this? And it's easy to miss. But what sound, what town was it that, that God had just said, if you stay here, they're going to give you up? Kayla. What was this town that just got saved from the Philistines by, the, by David? Kayla. It wasn't King Saul who saved them. It was the anointed true king, David, that had saved them. But yet, they were going to turn him in. Now, what you see quite clearly here is God, who knows all things, is completely omniscient, all-knowing, knew exactly what would take place. And he didn't just come upon that information. He knew that information before he sent David to go rescue the town. But yet God still called him to do it anyways. He called him to show grace to people who would ultimately betray him. Why? Because that is the true nature of God's people, because that is the true nature of God. As I read in our opening passage from the book of Romans, our hope isn't that God showed mercy on a bunch of people that were already following him, but rather God showed mercy on a people who were alienated and hostile and enemy to him. Our very hope as a people to know God, to be transformed by him, to spend eternity with God, is that God showed us grace that was completely and utterly undeserved. That is our hope. And ultimately, as he has united us with Christ in his death and with his new life, that is what he has called his people to image God to do as well. And so we, in the face of evil, we don't decide, well, I think you guys will be our allies in the future, so we'll help you, but we won't help you because I think you're going to betray us. No, we show the same abandonment to love and mercy and grace as the Lord Jesus Christ has shown us. Do we have to be wise? Of course. Wise as serpents, gentle as lambs. But ultimately, we are called to love in the face and to show good, even when the people don't respond to it the way we want them to, because it's not about us. It's about showing the true Savior, which is Jesus Christ. This true Savior who came into this dark world and took on human flesh and tabernacled among us and ultimately died on the cross, taking the wrath of God for sins. 
so that he might show mercy and give new life to those who would trust in him by faith. One of my favorite stories from church history, and there's a famous artwork that goes about it during the times when you saw the wars between the, the magistrate Christians, that's the Paedobaptists and the Anabaptists when they're coming up. And there's this, this, this story of this uh, Anabaptist who was imprisoned. And he became so malnourished that ultimately he was able to escape his prison because he was so thin he was able to move through the bars. And so he was able to move through the bars and, and take off into the forest, and it was wintertime. And one of the guards began chasing after him. And so he ran over a frozen lake. And again, this guy was so light and malnourished, he was able to run over the lake. But the guard who was running by him, who had armor on and everything, began crashing through the lake and ultimately would have drowned. But the man turned back, rescued the person, rescued the guard, saved his life. Now you would think, well, okay, here's how the story is going to end. He looked at him and said, what a great man you are, and set him free. No, put him back in prison, and he was ultimately executed. And we might say, that is a horrible story, Bo. Why did you just tell that? Because that is distinctively Christian response to evil that glorifies God. We don't have to worry about the short-term win because we know ultimately Christ has defeated evil in the cross and in his resurrection. He is coming again. The victory is won. Evil has been defeated. So we, that frees us to show good. There's one final way that I want us to look at. And this isn't necessarily found in 1 Samuel 22 or 1 Samuel 23. But once again, we find insight into David's, what's going on with David because of the Psalms. And this is my last challenge to us. The distinctively way to respond to evil is with the Psalms more than political commentaries. You see, oftentimes in our face of evil, we want to go and we want to look at, oh, what is so-and-so on Fox News has to say about this new legislation? What is so-and-so in the Dallas Morning News? How does his columnist say that I should react to this? But within Scripture, we see God in his mercy gives us language and the ability to look at how to respond in a way that is distinctively Christian. And in the Psalms, there's these things, there's these Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms. A little bit of a fancy word, but basically imprecatory Psalms, we don't hear much about them because they're the Psalms where the, the writer gets, he gets mad. He, he starts yelling at people in the Psalms. But what you see is God has given us a way to process evil in a way that takes it to the Father and trusts him. He's not saying, just suppress your anger or just ignore evil. No. Instead, take your anger to me. And this is similar to what we talked about last week where we talked about take our lament, take our discouragement to God. 
but he also calls us to take our anger to God as well. And so once again, as we look at the Psalms, we find here in Psalm 52, notice the inscription to the choir master, a maskil of David, what? When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come into the house of Ahimelech. Well, when did he find out with that? When he found out what Doeg the Edomite had done and wiped out the priests and wiped out the entire city of Nob. And so you see David processes this evil. Notice what he does. Why do you boast, O evil, of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, your worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from the tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. And so what you see in here is he's giving words to acknowledge the evil that was done. To look behind the evil and see what's going on behind it. But also in a way that turns his own heart, his own hopes onto the living God. He's not saying, hey, one day I'm going to be in charge and I'm coming for you, dude. He's saying, no, no, no. The steadfast love of the Lord, that's my hope. My hope is in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. He, he is in control. The people will see. Ultimately, what you're seeing throughout the Christian response to evil is trust in the living God. Not looking to people, political powers, not to say that voting and all this stuff doesn't matter. It matters. Elections have consequence. But our ultimate hope isn't found in the rulers and the powers of this world. If you're like me, you're trying to emotionally prepare yourself there, the election season coming up. And I'm so thankful that I'm going out of town coming up where there is going to be no internet and no cell phone. And it's going to be good. People are going to be calling us to find our hope in people and in princes. But that's not the distinctively Christian way of responding to the problems in the world. Doesn't mean that what we're doing or votes doesn't matter, doesn't count, or they don't, they don't, they don't have impact. They do. But they're not where our ultimate hope lies. 
And for you who may be coming in here today and you're looking for hope, and maybe you looked and you've assumed that the way Christians just respond to things is, is, is you know, boycotts and anger and yelling. Let me point to you the distinctively Christian way is ultimately found in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It destroyed the power of evil and sin and death on the cross and rose again victorious in it. Is Christ has died, Christ has risen, and ultimately, this is so important, Christ is coming again. The true king is coming. We live in this time of both now and not yet. As we anticipate, we see the first fruits of his kingdom as God's spirit is at work through his people where we're able to respond with evil with good and love in a way that testifies to our true hope. We see the power of the gospel that is able to save all because we recognize no one is worthy of the gospel. No one here, as you look around, you may see somebody you think, well, that person is such a saint. Of course he's a Christian. You know what? At one point, that person was a complete hostile enemy to God. No one here deserves God's mercy or love. We have hope to receive it on the basis of God's goodness in the face of our evil. This is our hope. This is our response. What are you trusting in today? Let me implore you. Let me call you today to respond with the simple statement, Christ is our king. Christ is our king. As you feel overwhelmed with fear, Christ is king. Christ has died. I know this is an Easter statement, but you know what? It gives us stability all year long. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is king. Make that your hope today. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. For your love, your compassion, and your goodness towards us, though we don't deserve it. Who are we that we should hope in you? Who are we that we should receive your kindness? But yet, by faith, we declare it is ours with boldness. There is nothing more. Christ is, it is finished. It is done. Thank you.